Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started. Well, we are almost halfway through, we are about halfway through, our sermon series for Lent and Easter that we're calling Including the Excluded. Including the Excluded. Um, In this sermon series, we are looking at Jesus' ministry in the third gospel, and that would be the Gospel of Luke. Okay. Uh, I do not know this preacher's name. I'm sorry. This has happened a lot. And most of the time when it happens that I don't know a preacher's name, it's not in the uh, YouTube notes or anything like that. It's not real obvious um, what church they're from. In this case, I just didn't look. I think I think his name is there. And... Uh, so, uh, if it is in an obvious place, I will put it in the show title on the blog, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. Come to the blog, check it out, uh, join in on the comments. It uses Discuss, just sign in on your Discuss account and discuss away. Also, we'll, while we're talking about properties, uh, welcome to anyone who's new to my content. Uh, I'd like you to check out my other content. You can find it at patreon.com slash red letters, patreon.com slash red letters. Red letters, uh, it's a book I've recently uh, released. The full title, Red Letters, A Closer Look at the Worst Practical and Moral Teachings in History. I have a few things to say as I deep dive on the teachings of Jesus. We've been going through a uh, commentary on uh, the book and really expanding on the topics. So you can pick up your book for free, uh, join in. It's a dollar per podcast, essentially, uh, no more than $5 in a given month. And that's on the months where there are five Fridays in the month. So uh, pretty easy uh, thing to do. Uh, jump on in. We'd love to see you in the conversation over there. It's a fun place. And it, frankly, it's the most fun I've had on the internet uh, it's a lot of work, but uh, I put in the time because I enjoy it so much. And uh, I, I just appreciate all of the people who have come along for the ride. And I invite you to come along and try it out yourself. In the meantime, we will get back to Preacher Unknown. Uh, one other note about that. I don't actually care whether you know who the preacher is or what church they're representing or what denomination they're from. I... I actually want to remove as many biasing bias biasing elements as possible you know things that might bias you uh one way or the other i just want you to hear what preachers are saying i assure you i pull from uh as wide of uh, a variety as i can whether it's uh, catholic pentecostal church of england baptist methodist uh, whatever it is, uh, I, I put it out there. White, black, uh, has to be English-speaking, because otherwise I wouldn't understand what they're saying. Uh, but uh, if you have a sermon that you would like me to go over, uh, shoot me an email, skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. That'll get to me. Uh, redlettersbook at gmail.com. That'll do it, too. So, uh, yeah, uh, let's... Let's get on with this one. This is the second sermon I've done uh, where the topic was demons. Yeah, we're going into uh, demons again. It's Here's the thing. There are certain topics in the Christian world, especially the American Christian world, that are just big. They're just big topics. They're very important to... Christians in general and important to the Christian doctrine, important to the theology. Demons is one of them. It's it's very important. And so, you know, I have to skip over sermons about demons because there's so many and it's discussed so frequently. So, yeah, it's going to come up from time to time. It's not going to, I'm not going to play them nearly as often as I run into them. Because some topics I'm just going to skip over because we've already done it recently. Uh, But, 
you know, once again, this is a part of the cross-section of what you're seeing in Christianity. I'm, I'm pretty much pulling these out randomly. And, um, yeah, some things are just going to come up a little bit more than often. So we're back with demons. The thing I want you to listen to, uh, listen for in this sermon, is how people who are trying to sound reasonable talk about demons. So, you know, they're, they're always the people who aren't very reasonable. We know how they talk about demons. Listen to people who want to be reasonable and well-respected. Um, listen to how they talk about it. They talk about it differently. At the end of the day, though, it's still crazy. It's still nutbags. But they've got to approach it more carefully. The other thing I want you to listen for is just how much of demonology is made up, just sometimes made up on the fly, just made up. If you talk to Christians, which I have many times as a Christian, as an atheist, uh, about demons, it doesn't take very long at all before they don't have any Bible verses to go to, they don't have any Bible knowledge about, but they will continue to say things as if they knew for a fact that it was true. They will speak authoritatively about a thing they can't possibly know anything about. Uh, just, just a realm of on-the-spot uh, fantasy creation passed on as the God's honest truth. So I'm not saying that that's what this preacher does. I'm sure that he has thought about these things, at least for the 10 minutes that it took him to put together the sermon. But um, I'm sure he took longer than 10 minutes, folks, being facetious here. But the stuff he says about demons, I'll just, I'll pause every, every now and then, just point out one or two things. You could just ask yourself, how do you know that? Where did you get that from? Uh, and marvel, marvel at the millions of Christians who never ask that question when they should. All right, uh, one last thing before we hit play. You will hear me kind of out of breath. You'll hear traffic noises. You might hear some bird song here and there. I am outside taking a walk in the park. It's not actually a particularly nice day today, but I wanted to get out and eat the exercise. So I am walking in the park. I am out of breath as if I had been running. I have not been running. This is running for me. And um, yeah, let's, let's learn some things about demons. Um, in Luke, more so than any other gospel in the New Testament, more than Matthew, more than Mark, more than John. And Luke, the writer paints a portrait of Jesus where it's clear that Jesus' heart is with the excluded, with the marginalized, with the outsiders of this world. Now, to recap where we have been so far in the sermon series, uh, we have talked about the events surrounding the birth of Jesus as we find them in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. We have talked about Jesus' healing of a man with leprosy, and that story is in Luke chapter 5. We have talked about Jesus' ministry with a woman who is considered to be a sinner, immoral. That story is in Luke chapter 7. And in this message today, uh, we're going to talk about another group of excluded people that Jesus ministered to. And that would be the demon-possessed. The demon-possessed. As I'm sure we all know, throughout his public ministry as an adult, and as a reminder, Jesus' public ministry lasted for a period of three years. Well, throughout that three-year period, Jesus exercised, in other words, he cast out a number of demons or evil spirits from people. And the exorcism story that we're going to look at today, it is so famous, it's not only found in the Gospel of Luke. There's actually overlap here. It's also found in the Gospel of Matthew in the Gospel of Mark. It's found in three of the Gospels, three out of four Gospels. It's probably one of the most well-known exorcism stories, if not the most well-known exorcism story in all the Gospels. And uh, this gentleman, 
uh, was certainly excluded. In fact, no sermon series on Jesus' ministry with excluded people would be complete, in my opinion, without looking at the story. Now, the reason this man was excluded, as we said, is that he was possessed by a demon. And before we look at the story itself, I want to pause for a moment. Because I know that for a lot of us, we hear that word demon possession, and we're not quite sure how to react, are we? Because as modern 21st century people, demons don't seem to be a part of our everyday experience. We read about them in the Gospels, but they don't seem to be a part of our everyday experience. And let's be honest, for a lot of us, our thinking about demons has been shaped by horror movies like The Exorcist. How many of you have seen The Exorcist before? I so have not. when we read in the Gospels that a big part of Jesus' public ministry as an adult involved exercising demons, casting out demons, again, we don't really have a category as modern people for thinking about all this, we start to wonder, well, what exactly did Jesus exercise? What exactly did Jesus cast out? And a question that some of us have is this. Is it possible that what these people had was not a demon in the literal sense, but could it have been something else? Maybe a mental illness or a medical condition, something that a doctor would diagnose today. Okay, so I'm going to let him continue with that thought. I just wanted to chime in uh, right there. He's talking about demon possession not being a part of our, um, our lived experience. Um, it's not something that we generally deal with. Well, that's a very Amerocentric view, I think. Um, we Americans don't uh, talk about demon possession a lot, or deal with demon possession in particular. We talk about it, but we don't actually see demon possession. Uh, and most Christians, even though they believe in demon possessions, don't uh, actually... Um, admit to having been possessed or known anyone who's possessed or seen a, a possession uh, exorcism or anything like that. I actually know a preacher uh, who claims to have done uh, demon possessions. And so it's not just some story on the internet for me. Uh, it was uh, when I was going to a particular church, no need to mention it, but uh, yeah, it's a preacher who might be categorized as a bit of a strange egg, but it was a you know a nice sub white suburban church. The denomination not known for major flights of fancy that sort of thing, but this preacher he was a little bit of an oddball, and yeah, he spoke openly about his experiences with demon possessions and exorcisms, so. Uh, it is out there. It is out there. It's a thing that you generally hear about. I, I don't mean to use biasing language here, and I'm sure that someone will beat me about the head and shoulders for this, but it's, it's something that you mostly hear about in poor countries where people are less educated. There, demon possessions seem to thrive. Here, not so much. Okay, let's go back to the story. He's saying that sometimes demon possessions might be mental illnesses. I want to say a few words about this. Now, it's helpful to recognize that in the ancient world 2,000 years ago, when you had a condition that couldn't be explained, it was thought that perhaps a demon was behind your affliction. When you had, condi when you had a condition that couldn't be explained, it was thought that perhaps a demon was behind your affliction. And there's actually an example of this in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 4. A Jesus, after he's rejected at Nazareth, he makes his home base in Capernaum, which is a nearby village. And we're told in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus is at the home of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Remember Simon Peter, his disciple, probably the most famous disciple? So he's at the home of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and Luke says that Simon Peter's mother-in-law has a fever, and the fever won't go away. So what does Jesus do? Luke says that Jesus 
rebukes the fever, just like he would rebuke a demon. Because it was assumed back then that demons were the cause of fevers. Nowadays, of course, we know that fevers are caused by viruses and infections. But 2,000 years ago, people didn't know all that. Does that mean that they were less smart than we are? Absolutely not. They just didn't have the same knowledge about the body that we have today. Well, I've got one question here. Uh, never mind what the average person knows. Did Jesus know that fevers were not caused by demons? Because he seems to cast it out, <laughs> or tries to. Um, so did he know? Was, was he also uh, ignorant about such things? And if he was, that casts a lot of doubt on his various exorcisms then. Now, he's, he's going to have something to say about that, but I just, I just want to put that earworm in your, in your head uh, because I think, it's, I think it's very important. Also, is he saying that no fevers were uh, actually demons? Or is it just some fevers are demons? Uh, so is he, is he saying that no fevers are caused by demons? I'm not entirely sure the line he is uh, trying to walk here. But, yeah, it, it opens up some interesting questions. And I would like to think, you know, in my fantasy brain, that there were some people who uh, came up to him after the sermon and had some questions. Just like people... 100 years from now, 200 years from now, in future generations, they're going to have knowledge about the body that we don't have right now in 2022. Our knowledge about the body, because of God's grace and because God has given us brains and the ability to engage in research and do science, our knowledge about the human body, it's always growing, it's always getting better. False equivalency much? You know, what we don't know about the human body and things that we might get wrong today in the pursuit of a better understanding is not even in the same category as assuming that it's demons. And so to me, I don't know this 100%, but to me, it is plausible that some conditions thought to be caused by a literal demon back then maybe would be diagnosed differently today uh, through medical science. The important thing to recognize is that whatever these people had that was oppressing them, that was holding them down and preventing them from experiencing the fullness of life, Jesus had the authority to cast it out. He had the authority to send it away. Jesus is sovereign over absolutely everything. All right, so was it a demon that Jesus cast out, or did he just heal someone of sickness? You see, this is the kind of line that this type of preacher has to walk because he doesn't want to sound like an idiot babbling about demons and demon possessions. But he also doesn't want to say out loud that, you know, all those stories about demons, they weren't really demons. It was just health issues. Uh, so, yeah, this is, this is why this type of speech creates so much uh, confusion, because no one knows exactly what he's trying to say. I think he's going to clear it up. He is king over this entire universe. That being said, I don't want us to assume that when we read a demon possession story in the Gospels, we think that we could just explain it away through our modern Western categories. In my opinion, that would be a mistake. I'm just going to lay my cards on the table. I am fully convinced that demons are real. C.S. Lewis, uh, the great 20th century lay theologian, he wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters. And at the beginning of the book... Yeah, I'm going to have to stop you right there. Uh, so you, you're going to lay your cards out on the table in front of your church. Demons are real. Big, big surprise there. But, and then you immediately go to C.S. Lewis. You immediately go to fiction to start making your case. 
do, do any Christians have a problem with this? He said that there are two mistakes that we can make when it comes to the devil and demons. Um, all human beings can make these mistakes, but particularly those of us modern people in the West. The first mistake would be to obsess about them, talk about them all the time, so much so that it's as if we put them on equal playing field with God, as if they could stand a chance. The second mistake, C.S. Lewis says, is to discount their existence altogether. And I would encourage us to resist both those options, particularly the second one, because my reading of the New Testament tells me that demons are real. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, I believe it's in verse 12, Paul says that our present battle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, Paul is saying that our present battle in this world is not against human beings. Instead, Paul says, our present battle is against powers. Okay. Uh, I, I made this point in the last sermon. I'm just going to make it in this sermon. Um, if you have anyone else babbling publicly about being in struggles with non-human species, they would very likely be in an insane asylum making those pronouncements uh, outside or they would be on their way into an insane asylum they would definitely need their medications upgraded but when a preacher says it in a robe in a church it's just realities rulers of darkness Paul's referring to the spiritual realm. Paul is saying that there are evil forces at work in this cosmos that are invisible to us, that we don't see. And, and because Paul said it, that's, that's what we're going on, right? I don't say all this to spook us out or anything like that because the full reality is we don't have to be afraid of these evil forces. These evil forces are terrified of Jesus. These evil forces tremble in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the story from Luke chapter 8 that we're about to read demonstrates, just how terrified these evil forces are of the Lord Jesus. Tell me, if these evil forces are terrified of Jesus, why do they hang out in this world? where Jesus is Lord and Christ and alive and well and has the power to suss out these demons. Why are they here? They don't seem to be terrified of anything. And so with that said, that brings us today to Luke chapter 8, uh, verses 22 and 26. That's going to be our starting point, verses 22 and 26 of Luke 8. I'll be reading from the NLT, uh, the New Living Translation. The words are up here on the screen. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, and he's speaking here to the 12 disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and started out. And then Luke says four verses later, so they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes across the lake from Galilee. Now, what I love about Luke is Luke is the very descriptive writer. He's very illustrative. He's detail-oriented. So what he is doing with these two verses is he is setting the stage for this story. So one day, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, let's get a boat. Let's cross to the other side of the lake. Now, it's helpful for us to have a visual of where this story happens. We've got the map up here on the screen. Take a look at this map. The lake to which Jesus is referring when he says, let's cross to the other side of the lake, is the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee isn't literally a sea, uh, it's a lake. It was known as the Sea of Galilee, but it's actually a large body of fresh water. Now what's happened is, Jesus has just finished doing ministry in Capernaum. Again, Capernaum became his home base after he was rejected at his hometown of Nazareth. In fact, Capernaum is where he healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, of the fever that she had when he cast it away. And so when Jesus says, let's cross to the 
other side of the lake, the region that he's talking about is over here, uh, the bottom right, the country of the Gerasenes, also called the Decapolis. Um, Decapolis is a Greek term that simply means 10 cities because there were 10 cities in this area. Now, what's important for us to recognize is this. This was a predominantly Gentile area. In other words, the vast majority of the people who lived here were not Jewish. Uh, they did not follow the God of Israel. They did not practice the Jewish faith. Ordinarily, if you were a faithful Jewish person, you didn't go over here because Gentiles were considered to be unclean and that would have made you unclean. So when Luke includes this comment from Jesus, let's get into the boat, let's go to the other side of the lake, Luke is being crystal clear that Jesus is intentionally going out of his way. He is purposely going out of his way. Which causes us to ask this question. Why? Why does Jesus, of all the places that he, he could go to right now, why does Jesus insist on going here? Has he heard rumors about this demon-possessed man? Have these rumors gotten so pervasive that they've traveled all the way to Capernaum? Keep in mind, there was no Facebook, there was no news, there was no social media back then. But these rumors have come all the way to Capernaum, causing Jesus to drop everything and to go to this man who in every way that we can imagine was excluded. I think that like he does so often, Luke is demonstrating to us just how much Jesus' heart beats for the outcast. I just want to make an observation here. I think all of that's uh, fine and good. I know that there is a certain variety of progressive Christian out there, believe it or not, I'm not thinking about any in particular, who takes a story like this and they want to focus on that part. You see, Jesus is out here helping the Gentiles. He's out here helping the people who are considered outcasts. And they will make their meal off of that and just skip over all of the demon talk because that makes them feel uncomfortable and they'll say, well, you know, that's you know, probably you know, very hyperbolic or, or maybe, uh, maybe it's a metaphor. Maybe, you know, it's not, it shouldn't necessarily be taken as history. But the important takeaway is how inclusive Jesus was. I would say that that's, that's a very rose-tinted glasses way of reading the Bible. So let's read on uh, verses 27 through 29 of this passage. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, so they arrive in the region, he gets out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons, not even simply one demon, multiple demons, came out to meet him. That is, came out to meet Jesus. For a long time, we don't know how long it had been, maybe years for all we know, for a long time he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside the town. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked. Now, I asked somebody in the last service if they could demonstrate the shriek. Can anybody this morning demonstrate the shriek? Come on, folks. Something loud like that. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down in front of him. And then he screamed, why are you interfering with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, notice the demon immediately recognizes Jesus for who he is. Please, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. This spirit had often taken control of the man. Even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles, he simply broke them and rushed out into the wilderness, completely under the demon's power. What a scene. This story involves so many layers of exclusion. If ever there was an excluded person, this guy was that individual. To start with, this guy is a Gentile, so he's not Jewish like Jesus and the disciples. He's living in this predominantly Gentile area. But then on top of that, does he live with the townspeople? Is he a part of the community? No, he's an outcast. He, he lives in a cemetery outside the village around a bunch of dead bodies. And what do you picture when you picture this guy? Just imagine that with me for a moment. How long has it been since he's had a haircut? How long has it been since he's shaved? How long has it been since he's had a bath? 
I read a quote this week from Aristotle. At one point, Aristotle said that the mind thinks in pictures. That's true, isn't it? The mind thinks in pictures. So this is the picture that comes into my mind whenever I come across the story. It's up here on the screen. Does anybody remember what movie this is from? Caveman? This is from the movie Jumanji with Robin Williams, a very gifted actor. And so this is Robin Williams' character from Jumanji. Jumanji's a board game, and he was trapped in this board game. You've got to watch the movie. But uh, he just jumps out of it because he's been trapped in the jungle for like 26 years or something like that. Actually, Luke tells us that this guy's condition was worse than this because this guy doesn't have any clothes on. He's running around naked. Somebody said, uh-oh, he's running around naked. Okay, I just, again, this comes up every time the story uh, is here. And, of course, Christians are not sex-obsessed or sexually repressed or anything. But why is the big focus, oh, this guy doesn't have any clothes on? That's why this story will never be enacted in church. We will never see a play on this story. It would be inappropriate. And clearly, this guy must have been hurting himself or hurting other people because the townspeople saw it fit to chain him up. But the demons inside of him, evidently, they were so strong that they just overwhelmed him and he breaks apart these chains. So we can imagine he's got like a handcuff here and a handcuff here. Can you imagine the rumors that spread about this guy? Whenever somebody's behavior is different and unusual, that's what we're really good at doing as people. So since this guy is kind of presenting as a, a little bit of a progressive, not, he's trying to steer away from the conservative fundamentalist, why does he automatically assume that this story is literal at all? I mean, why, what is it about this story that makes even... Progressive Christians want to read it literally. If there's any story in the Bible begging to not be read literally, it seems to be this one. We're not good at helping them necessarily. Coming alongside them, we are really good at gossiping and spreading rumors. I've been guilty of this. When I started my freshman year of college, I moved into the residence hall and there was a guy who lived in the residence hall with me. And right away, this guy got a reputation for being weird. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about somebody else. <laughs> Though I probably had that reputation too to a certain degree. To begin with, we had this bench. Just imagine this with me. There was this bench outside the residence hall. And students who smoked, they would sit down and they would smoke on the bench because they couldn't smoke inside. Or they would sit on the bench and they would talk to their friends. Well, it didn't seem to matter what time of day it was. If it was 7 o'clock in the morning, if it was noontime, if it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, if it was 8 o'clock at night, this guy seemed to always be on the bench. I'd go to class and come back a few hours later. He was on the bench when I left for class. He was on the bench when I came back. Or sometimes on a Friday night, my friends and I, we'd go out to eat and go see a movie, come back a few hours later. He was on the bench when we left. He was on the bench when we came back. It was as if he never moved. Sometimes it would seem as if he was talking to himself, having a conversation with himself when he was on the bench. Or other times there would be other students and they would be talking to each other, you know, as friends. And this guy would stand up and he would invite himself in the conversation and then he would make random comments that had nothing to do with what the people were talking about. So people started to talk about him. They came up with a nickname for him. They called him Stoop Kid. Stoop Kid was a character on a cartoon uh, in the 90s. And a lot of these guys, myself included, we were children of the 90s, and so that's where that reference came from. Because this guy, they said, he never left his stoop, never left his bench. He was always there. Folks, I regret to share with you that among my friends, I call that guy Stoop Kid. I participated in some of that gossip and some of those rumors, probably because of insecurities I had inside of myself. You know what happened to that guy? He didn't even finish out the first semester. 
He left after about two months of being there. In fact, his roommate, I didn't share this in the last service, but his roommate, when his roommate realized that this guy was getting a bad reputation, he asked the residence hall people if he could move out because he didn't want to be associated with him. You know what's even sadder? I couldn't even tell you what his real name is because I never took the time to sit on that bench with him and to have a conversation with him and to befriend him. God forgive me. I screwed up. What nicknames did the people in the garrisons have for this man? Demon-possessed Danny. Lunatic Leonard. Can you imagine the nicknames? But Jesus saw past all the nicknames. Jesus saw past all the layers of exclusion, and Jesus saw this man for who he truly was, a child of God who was suffering tremendously. And Jesus' anger, his righteous anger, welled up within him against the forces of evil that were holding this man hostage. And so Jesus liberated him. Let's read on. Jesus demanded, he's speaking here to the demon, Jesus demanded, what is your name? Now Jesus asked the demon for his name, and the reason for this, in the ancient world, it was assumed that if you had somebody's name, then you could exercise a degree of power over that person. Okay. I, did I hear? Someone, someone lend me your ears. Is he suggesting that Jesus, because he was in the ancient world, also believed that one could gain power over a person by knowing their name? Is this, is this the dark magic that Jesus was doing here? Is this what Jesus thought? Is this how he thought? Um, yeah, if so, why would anyone listen to this guy? From, from this generation, from this century. But maybe that's not what he's saying. Um, I've listened to this a few times. It seems to be what he's saying. And if we think about it, this actually carries a lot of truth. For example, if I see you at the grocery store later on this afternoon, and you have your back turned toward me, but I say to you, hey, Grady, or hey, Barbara, or hey, Ty, or Adam, what you're going to do is you're going to stop what you're doing, you're going to turn around, and you're going to look at me. So in a sense, I will have influenced your behavior. Wow. Wow. This is the extent to which a liberal Christian will go to satisfy fundamentalist ideas. I mean, false equivalency much? Are, we, are you kidding? This is not what the superstition of having a power over a person because you know their name. That's not what this is all about at all. It's not what it's about at all. And so for him to, to make this connection, it, you know, I hesitate to just outright call people dishonest. This feels really dishonest to me. I will have exercised a degree of power over you. Do you remember the story of God and Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3? What did Moses ask God for when God told Moses, go to Egypt? I want to know what your name is. Because again, the thinking is, if I have somebody's name, I can exercise control. Moses actually thought that he could exercise control over God. So the demon, or I'm sorry, Jesus asked the demon for his name, and this is the demon's response. This is verse 31. Legion. He replied, for he was filled with many demons. The demons kept begging Jesus not to send them into the bottomless pen. Jesus asked the demon for his name, and the demon responds with the word legion. What is this about? At this time, Israel was an occupied territory of what government? Oh, hold on. Um, just a note about hell. We know how the goalposts move there. Uh, I've been told by certain vocal Christians from certain quarters that hell is not some kind of torture chamber. 
Uh, he just called it a bottomless pit. The demons didn't want to go back to the bottomless pit. And to be clear, Jesus, Jesus made the connection, not me, that hell, the hell that people would be cast into was a place prepared for the devil and his angels. So whatever it is that's prepared for the devil and his angels is what's prepared for us. In this case, not a lake that burns with fire, but a bottomless pit. Still sounds pretty bad. Okay, is that what hell is or not? Will the real hell please stand up? The Roman government. Rome had come in. It was oppressing God's people during this time. The emperor was Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Well, legion was a military word, a Roman military word, that was used to refer to a regiment of at least 5,500 Roman soldiers. This is a, an artist's illustration of what a Roman legion looked like. In other words, that's the demon's creative way of saying, there are thousands of us in this guy. This is the kind of power we wield over his man. Is it any wonder why he's naked, why he's breaking all these handcuffs and doing all this crazy stuff? This is the kind of power we have over him. But the demons are smart enough to know, demons aren't stupid, they're smart enough to know that this power is not... Wait, how do we know that demons aren't stupid? Is that just a made-up fact on the spot? Um, demons could be really stupid. They, they might not be any smarter than your dog. And trust me, your dog, they may seem smart. They're not that smart. <laughs> So, I mean, they can learn a few tricks and uh, nature has bred them to do certain things. They're not that smart. Demons could be, you know, around there. How, how does he know? That, that feels like one of those made up on the spot facts to me. Nothing compared to the kind of power that the Son of God has. And so they beg Jesus for mercy. They say, Jesus, please, whatever you do, don't send us into the abyss. Don't send us into the bottomless pit. Sounds like a pretty bad place. In other words, they're saying, please don't send us unto hell. Hell is so bad that even the demons don't want to go there. Okay, so once again, I, I, this is not about hell, but he's painting a picture of hell that's more along the traditional view. And he's saying some things that are somewhat non-traditional about demons. What is the truth about hell? Does it, can anyone speak authoritatively on this? And so Luke tells us in the next verse, there's this herd of pigs. Remember, this is a Gentile region. Jewish people wouldn't have had pigs, but because pigs were considered unclean, but Gentiles had pigs. They see these pigs and they say, well, send us into the herd of pigs. Now, what the demons are trying to do, they're trying to outsmart Jesus. They're trying to trick him because they know that Jesus is not from this area. Eventually, he's going to get in the boat, go back to Capernaum. At that point, they'll leave the pigs and go back into the man. There's nothing binding them in the pigs. Okay. Uh, once again, this feels like facts about demons made up on the spot. And I, I get his task. He's trying to explain a story that is fundamentally unexplainable. And so what he's done is uh, the reason they want to go into the pigs is to trick Jesus. And they're scared of Jesus. So they know he's very powerful and probably really smart, at least by their measure. They think they're going to trick Jesus by going into pigs? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think that follows. But the, the next thing uh, he says after that really just kind of uh, adds to the idea that he's just making this up on the spot. So why do, why do they want to go into pigs? Because Jesus is going to eventually leave and so they'll just be able to get out of the pigs. But what makes anyone think that the demons would have the power to just get out of the pigs? If Jesus casts you into pigs, 
you're in the pigs. <laughs> and, and if the demons could just get out, I don't understand the power that Jesus wills or the power that demons wills. Uh, but, it, it, but something doesn't make sense there. Also, why do they need Jesus' permission to go in the pigs? You know, if they were able to get out of the pigs anytime they wanted to, seems like they'd be able to go into the pigs anytime they wanted to. Um, yeah, just uh, just a thought. Um, I don't know. I think I want to quit trying to make sense of this. But Jesus is not going to be outsmarted by a bunch of silly demons. So he says, okay, you have my permission. Go into the pigs. Listen to what happens. Verse 33, then the demons came out of the men and entered the pigs. I don't know what that would have looked like, but they came out of the guy, entered the pigs, and the entire herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned. The pigs are destroyed. And because the demons no longer have a host, where do they end up going? Right back into hell. Wait a minute. I don't think the story actually says that. <laughs> so this, um, this also sounds like making things up on the fly here. Um, so the demons uh, go into the pigs and the pigs go into the ocean and they drown. But why did the pigs go into the ocean and drown? I mean, the demons were in the pigs. So surely they had control of the pigs, right? If, if they didn't have control of the pigs and the pigs were in control and they thought to themselves with their little pig minds, I'd rather drown than have these demons in me, then why didn't the man that the demons were possessing have similar control? But he didn't seem to have any control at all. The demons had uh, full control. So why didn't they have control when they were in the pigs? Also, when they, when they drowned themselves, who's to say that the demons would have drowned with the pigs? And what, what rule, what law says that the demons have to be embodied somehow? The, the demons presumably are spirits. So why do they need any kind of bodies to exist? Why would you just assume that because their current host drowns, then they can't live on and go find another host. Why is, that, why is that eliminated as an option? Well, I guess it's eliminated as an option because this is a preacher who's just making stuff up on the fly. The very place from which they came. Jesus exercises thousands of demons from the sky. But rather than being happy about it, rather than rejoicing about this, the townspeople get freaked out. They say to Jesus, get out of here. It makes them uncomfortable. The kind of power that Jesus has, that Jesus has complete power over the demonic. No, that's not what made the people uncomfortable. Once again, this is a very interesting way of, of framing this narrative. The people didn't want Jesus to leave because they were uncomfortable with his power. They wanted him to leave because they, he got rid of, in one swoop, he got rid of their entire livelihood. A completely unnecessary thing. He could have just sent the demons back to hell. But instead, he kills this whole herd of pigs. What the? And this is something that we need to hold on to in our lives today. When we encounter evil forces in our worlds. I am fully convinced, as I said, that demons and evil forces are real. But in my experience, these evil forces don't typically come to us in this manner that we just read about. <coughs> I think that this is certainly possible, but it's an extreme example. Instead, in my experience, demons and evil forces tend to come to us in ways that are more subtle, less obvious. In his experience. So I take it he's experienced demons coming to him in some other way, or is this just more making stuff up on the, on the fly? but still dangerous. We're unhappy in our marriage. And we think, well, my spouse and I, we don't really talk. We're never intimate. We're not on the same page. 
there's that person who's shown an interest in me. I'm not happy right now. Isn't my happiness important? Then all of a sudden, the affair begins. Or perhaps we're recovering from a, an addiction to alcohol, and we think, well, is one drink really going to matter? Is one drink really going to make a difference? I remember one time I officiated a funeral for a gentleman who died of alcohol-related issues, and his family said to me, the demons got to him. Okay, all right, I tried. Uh, sorry about the coughing uh, fit. If you don't hear a coughing fit, it's because I went and edited it out, but I have no intention of doing that, so sorry about that. Um, uh, if, however, uh, you didn't hear a coughing fit, you probably heard all of the nature sounds go quiet, which would probably be almost as distracting as the coughing. So there you go. I've got to I've got to ask here uh, at this spot. I think we're very near the end of this one. Um, so uh, demons. He he says the way they manifest is. You know, your your marriage isn't going so great and someone uh, is taking an interest in you and, you know, there you go. Or, you know, you, you're an alcoholic, uh, you're, you're trying to do better, but, you know, will, will one drink really matter? You know, and off, off, you, off the wagon you go. Um, is this the work of demons? Is this the work of demons? Can I get a Christian to answer that question? And, and as you answer it, I want you to think about the following question. If not for this demon's work, would the person have the affair? Would the person have the drink? If it wasn't for the demon, would those things happen anyway? If they would happen anyway, then what's the point of even talking about demons? Sorry about the wind here, rough patch. What's the point of talking about demons at all? If demons do not have any measurable effect in the world, it does not change whether we will do the sinful thing or not do the sinful thing. If it doesn't matter, then why are we talking about demons? And if we wouldn't do the sinful thing, if, if we would have done the right thing, were it not for those meddling demons, then why the heck does God allow demons to meddle? That's how the demons had showed up to him. It was through the bottle. How do you I know? I think that like what Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden that evil forces are really good at getting inside of our head and using our struggles. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, I'm sorry. Again, Eve, like Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden. Is this a literal story or not? I mean, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm over on Red Letters uh, getting my ass handed to me <laughs> for, from, you know, at least one person who's saying that shouldn't be taken literally. <laughs> Tell this guy. It's against us. I remember talking to somebody who for a long time suffered from anorexia. And there would be these voices in her head and they would say to her, don't eat that food. You're gonna put on weight. People are gonna make fun of you. Meanwhile, her body wasted away. Or I remember talking to another guy, he was suicidal and these voices in his head kept saying, nobody cares about you. Just end it all. Even though that was far from true. I know that for me, these evil voices have always plagued on my insecurities when it comes to God's call in my life to the ministry. In fact, for a long time, I suffered from what some people call imposter syndrome. You ever heard of that? Feeling like I was an imposter, that somebody was going to find me out, that I really didn't belong in pastoral ministry, that my gifts weren't good enough. I'm starting to think that that might have been an angel telling you that, not a demon. So my question for you this morning is this. 
In what ways have the demons tried to influence you? What I love most about the story is that Jesus intentionally sought this man out who in every way was excluded, and he completely liberated him of his demons. And that's what the Son of God wants to do in our lives too. He wants to liberate us from our demons, whatever those demons look like, whatever those demons involve, whatever those demons are trying to do. And do you know why Jesus has the authority to do this? Because Jesus is God. And as God, Jesus has complete sovereignty over everything in this universe. Take a listen to the very last line of the story. It says, The man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him home saying, No, go back to your family and tell them everything God has done for you. So he went all through the town proclaiming the great things Jesus had done for him. So Jesus says to the guy, Go tell your family what God has done for you. What does the guy do? He tells everybody what Jesus has done. He makes the connection. Jesus is God. Listen, folks, when it comes down to it, we don't need to be afraid of demons or evil forces. We don't need to spend our lives obsessing about them, worrying about them. All we need to do when we feel these evil forces plaguing us is simply surrender ourselves to God and trust ourselves to God. And there's actually a way that we can do this. And so I'm going to share this with you real quickly because I know that, gosh, we're already at noontime. <laughs> Martin Luther, who played a key role in the Protestant Reformation, it's been said that Martin Luther often battled demons, the, these evil voices in his head that caused him to doubt God's love. Whenever this happened, he would take his fingers and dip his fingers in water and then make the sign of the cross on his forehead, and he would say, Martin, be calm. You are baptized. In other words, relax. You belong to God, not to these evil forces. And so I would encourage us to do that. Whenever we're feeling tempted or we're feeling like these evil forces are coming to us, go into the bathroom, go to your kitchen, dip your finger in some water, make the sign of the cross on your forehead, and say, Megan, be calm, you are baptized. Okay. Um, see, bathroom or kitchen, so some room with... Uh, some plumbing. Dip your finger in water. Uh, got it. Make the sign of the cross. Now, uh, there was a major controversy. I want to say uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, once upon a time, whether to make the sign of the cross with two fingers or with three. I'm not sure how that panned out, and since I'm not from a tradition that makes the sign of the cross, I have no idea how it should properly be made, so you might want to consult your local shaman slash priest. Make the sign of the cross with with your dampened finger. What does the water do? <clears throat> sign of baptism, right? Um, and say, Megan, you are you are baptized. You are. You are. I don't know. I don't remember. Megan, relax. Megan. I don't. I don't remember the exact incantation. I don't know if this is one of those incantations where it will drive you insane if you say the wrong word. So we'll have to listen to him again uh, to see exactly the incantation. We'll have to consult a shaman on uh, the exact appropriate way to do the sign of the cross, but. This is apparently the spell to make the demon dogs go away. I would like uh, for someone to try this and let me know if this works. Robbie, be calm. You are baptized. Olga, be calm. You are baptized. Charlie, be calm. You are baptized. You belong to God. And even if you're not baptized, you can still do this because baptism signals the identity that we already have in God because of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm sorry, he's, he's almost done, and yet I have to stop here. The incantation is to tell yourself you are baptized. But he says, but if you're not, don't worry about it. It'll still work. Why would it work? <laughs> the incantation is you are baptized, Unless you're not, in which case you're lying. But don't worry, God, does it, it'll still work. It's just, it's demon magic. And that said, if you're not baptized, I hope that you will talk to myself or to Will. 
so that we can make that happen with you. We belong to God. God who is king over everything. Never, ever forget that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Let's not. Okay. Um, yeah, I think... <laughs> okay. Um, look, that's, this, is, this is the real challenge, though, for Christians. If, especially Christians who have an awareness that they're talking to people who are not Christians... Or, or who are talking to Christians who are not fundamentalists. You still have to address this very wackadoo issue. And there's simply no way to thread this needle where you don't end up saying some wackadoo things or making things up on the spot. Uh, I don't want to get any closer to the lawnmower man, so I think I'll go the other way here. Um... What do we know about demons? The Bible actually says very little about demons. So even if you trusted the Bible as your sacred knowledge about demons, it, it just doesn't go into any of that. I would, I would have way more respect for Christians if they just took the position that demons were not real. They were not a literal thing. They were never intended to be taken literally. So, you know, there's, there's no need to go into a lot of detail about something that's, that's not real. If they, if they just remove demonology from their religion, I don't think they would lose people. I mean, I, I may be wrong. Uh, and they would have a much more coherent uh, religion. But Christians are clearly afraid that they would lose people because this is crucial for them. There must be demons. Demons must be real. The devil must be real for them. They fear that their entire theology would fall apart without the devil. That's how important he is. And so even when it requires them to say things that do not cohere even a little bit, they feel obligated to say it anyway. And what's just as interesting, when preachers like this say these incoherent things, Christians just nod along and say amen, because they have no desire, no desire, zero desire, to look at this subject closely because their cognitive dissonance would kick in and their fantasy world would fall apart. And so they just nod along and say amen and say, yeah, that's right, that, that makes sense. They need demons to be real. Why? Life is so much better when demons aren't real for you. Um, saw a comment uh, very recently. Uh, I won't mention the name here. I don't have permission, but that's fine. It's publicly on the internet. That's still unsensitive, that sort of thing. person was uh, saying that, you know, they still have uh, nightmares and fears um, about uh, demons and hell and uh, that sort of thing. That's very real. That, uh, that was true of me uh, until you know, fairly recently. My thing was train horns. I think I've mentioned this on the show before. Whenever a train would go by uh, in the distance, I'd hear the horn, I'd jump every time. Uh, did this all my life because for some reason, the image of the final moment, the apocalypse, whatever you want to call it, where God comes back on the cloud and Gabriel is blowing his horn. That horn stuck with me. Um, and I was scared to death, truth be told, of the moment 
when the horn would be blown because I would never know which way which way I'm going. So train horns scared me to death and did for a long time after I stopped believing. But, you know, that's just me. Others suffer much worse trauma. And my trauma wasn't light. <laughs> Others suffer more. Um, this is really damaging stuff. And yet, Christianity can't let it go. They need it. They need it. I'd love to dig into that. Um, in the comments, by the way, I'm sorry I'm late getting this post out. I should have said that up front. Um, in the comments, you know, there's, there's all of the usual things that, you know, we can talk about whenever demons and hell come, come up. But I'd really like to talk about this one. Someone grab hold of that idea and run with it. Why do Christians need there to be literal demons for their theology to work? for it to work for them. Why is that so important? I really haven't gotten underneath that. Love to have some conversation about that. We will uh, talk again next time. Have a good one.